Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace in this time as we, your people, come before you to learn wonderful things from your word, to learn how to honor you in all ways. And we desire to glean from that wisdom that you gave your servant Solomon once more. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit without whom we can do nothing. We pray that he would apply these things to our souls. And Father, we pray for the sanctification of believers who are here. We pray also that if there are those here who are not believers, that they would come to know you even today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For the last couple of sermons, we have focused on men, the proverbial man. And at the same time, we've spoken to women also, but to lesser degree. However, now we're going to transition away from men as our primary emphasis, and we will address both sexes simultaneously. We're still going to do this in a way, though, that recognizes the distinctions in the sexes and continues to instruct along these lines. You remember back to the first sermon, we established that men and women are both image bearers, but we do bear that image in different ways. We are equally image bearers and of equal worth and value to God But that image of God is expressed in a manner that is consistent with our design as men and women. So when it is appropriate to address men, we will address them specifically, and with women it will be the same. And if you're wondering, ladies, well, aren't we going to speak to just or primarily the proverbial woman as we did with the man? Yes, we will. I am going through a process that seemed logical to me, and that was to begin with both sexes and identifying the natures of these and the way that that works, and then to focus on men as these spiritual leaders of their homes and in the church and in society, and then to, after that, deal with issues relevant to both men and women, and then to focus in on women more specifically afterwards, and then marriage, and then that which results from marriage, which is children and family. But ladies, rest assured that you have not been forgotten, either for your sakes or for the sake of our men. We went through those sermons on men. We often turned and spoke to ladies and said to you who are unmarried, this is the kind of man that you ought to be looking for. And uh, at one point, I recall saying to the married women in the congregation, your husband so needs to be these things that if he's not, you need to rebuke him. And if necessary, you need to bring the church into that because he cannot afford 
to not be the kind of husband and father that God has commanded him to be in basic ways. You cannot afford it, and your children cannot afford it. So with these things understood, though, this afternoon our thesis is going to be about money, and I hear like an audible dun-dun-dun when I say that. To be honest, I vacillated about whether or not to bring this to you, because although Solomon is the richest man ever, uh, as you might imagine, there's a lot to say about it. I wasn't really sure that it fit my overarching focus on sex roles. But then I started thinking about how the proverbial man is seen using his wealth to provide and protect in keeping with his masculinity, and how the proverbial woman personified in Proverbs 31 gives to her handmaidens and to the poor as an expression of her femininity and maternal nature. And then it became clear to me that this was too central to our lives as men and women to leave it unaddressed. Also, considering how much Solomon speaks about money, it kind of seemed unnatural to me to not address it, like I would have been going pretty far out of my way to avoid it. And so, because I want to be true to his intent as the author, I will not avoid it. And so, with those things said, here is point number one of only two points that I have for you this afternoon. And that first point is, the proverbial person works first for the Lord. Now, with respect to a great many issues in life, if you're not paying attention, an answer can keep you from the answer. And that's bad because without the answer, the issue, whatever it is, really does not make a lot of sense, and your pursuits in that area are not going to achieve what they ought to. Let me give you an example, and this is a critical one. Why do you want to get married, for those of you that are unmarried? Is it because you desire happiness, fulfillment, that which comes from companionship? Is it because you desire the children that that marriage would produce? Is it because you have a desire to fulfill uh, and see satisfied God-given sexual desires? Because all of those reasons are good, and the combination of all those reasons are good, but none of those reasons are the reason. Okay, The reason to want to get married, if you're thinking biblically, is that you want to glorify God by entering into a covenant that mirrors and therefore reveals His covenant with His redeemed. It is a gospel reason. The purpose of marriage is to reveal the relationship between Christ and His church, and that needs to be your primary reason for wanting to enter into that covenant, to have that revealed through that relationship. That is the answer. And without it, you're going to be looking for perhaps happiness at the expense of holiness, and that pursuit is why we have so many divorces. If the purpose is happiness, when this thing does not achieve that, I throw it away. Well, likewise, there are good answers to why do I need to make money. That are not the answer. So, for example, I need to make money to pay my bills, or I need to make money in order to support my family. Those are good answers. But according to Solomon, they are not the answer. And for the answer, let's turn to the text, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so or as a consequence of, not the cause of, but as a consequence of, uh, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Uh, if you don't know, giving to the Lord in Solomon's immediate context meant giving to the temple so that the priests could be supported, so that their families could be supported as they did that work. And without those contributions, they could not do that work. Their lives could not be devoted to that singular pursuit in the way that the Lord had commanded. So that is the answer to why do I need to make money. 
It's to financially support the work of God on earth, which happens now through the church as it happened then through the people of God as they were gathered at the temple. And because this is God's priority, it is God-honored, so it is a command with a promise. And here is that command again, verse 9, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that, verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And do you remember when I preached the first sermon on Solomon's wisdom, I said that it is a, a, a grave and significant error to yank Solomon's books violently out of the rest of the canon, that Solomon was not his own foundation, that Solomon was built upon Moses in all things. And there the point was uh, we connect the moral commands to the nature of God. But here with this issue, you can see it very clearly as well. Deuteronomy 18.4, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him as a concept of first fruits. Deuteronomy 26.2, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Exodus 23.16, again, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And you should also understand here that first fruits was not simply what you took out of the ground first. It was the best of what you took out of the ground first. It was the best of that first yield. And this is clear in Exodus twenty-three nineteen: The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So in Old Covenant or New, financially supporting the Lord's work was and is to be a man's or a woman's primary motivation to work. And in keeping with the concept of first fruits, you're not to treat the Lord's work as an afterthought. It is to be your first thought. And I find that giving first fruits and giving them to the end of your barns going to be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's one of those concepts that has been so tarnished by the world by the health and wealth movement in particular, that the rest of us would rather just leave it alone and leave it unaddressed because now it's icky. We can't do that because it's a very important theme in Scripture and it has ramifications far beyond finances. There are a whole lot of natural, natural requirements that were established by God that had far greater spiritual implications and pointed to something much greater than the natural command and this is one of those issues, as is true with this in both Old Covenant and New. With respect to the Old Covenant, Jeremiah 2.3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, meaning all who harmed them incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Did you know that God has first fruits too? He has his first and his best. And then it was spiritual Israel. Those who had, according to Moses, uh, circumcised hearts, new natures. And because Hebrews had been raised from childhood to give the Lord the first and the best that they grew, they very well understood what it meant for God to say that they were his first fruits. And that was the point. This was fundamental to their experience. So when the Lord turned around and said, you are the same to me, they got it. And here's just... 
One place of many where this is restated in the New Testament concerning the New Covenant. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And we very recently had our first child enter the workforce, uh, which we've found a way to cope with the fact that we have a child old enough to do that, but that did happen. Uh, but we gave this child no option about giving a percentage of her income to the church. And that wasn't self-serving because I'm the pastor and I derive my income from the church. I have worked since I was 12, and it was always understood that I was to give a percentage of that income to the church. The point is, and if I didn't articulate this well to that child, and I hope that they are listening now, the point of you giving a percentage first of your income is that you think of God first because he thought of you first. You give him your very best because he, in Christ, has given you his very best. So why do you work, Christian man and woman? Well, for many reasons, but none so important as the work of Christ's kingdom. A top of mind for the Christian parent who drags themselves out of bed to go to work once more is generally their children, and that's a good reason because when that alarm rings at 5 o'clock a.m. or whatever, you're going to need a reason in order to scrape yourself from the warmth of your bed into the cold air and to go to work. But that's not the greatest good. Support of Christ's work on earth is. And understanding the role that our contributions play should also make us much more grateful for our jobs. This is a means by which we express gratitude to the Lord. It's an outlet for thanksgiving. Thus, we are cheerful givers. It's a privilege to be able to give to the Lord who has given to us so much. Now, because, as I alluded to earlier, this concept of first fruits is so abused by health and wealth heretics, there are some words here that I need to give you a balance. First of all, let me say that the more immediate priority than the local church is your family. I do not say greater priority. I do say more immediate. The Lord is not honored by you taking money for your mortgage, let's say, and giving that to the church instead. If you cannot meet your own bills, do not give your money to the church. If you're a visitor here, you can look in the bulletin and you can see that you are not being asked to give anything. We're not trying to milk anything from anybody. The widow with her one mite who gave all that she had is not an exemplar of faithful giving. Rather, she is an exemplar of fruitless giving to an apostate religious system. And if they had been a legitimate religious system, they would probably have said, don't give us the last of what you have so that you can go home and die because you can't eat or pay your rent. So we don't want money that you cannot afford to give. And in fact, this isn't about us at all. It's an act of worship for a Christian. And at this point, I'd also like to say, because I'm going to continue to flesh this out, but right here, right now, I'd also like to say that in contrast to much of the rest of this series, this is not an intentional rebuke from me of this congregation. At the beginning of this series, I made very clear that a lot of this was an intentional rebuke of people neglecting uh, the nature of their creation by God as men and women. This congregation excels in this. I don't know how much anybody gives. I have deliberately avoided that. Again, and I've told you in the past that I don't see you as line items on a budget. I don't think it's good for my soul. 
I just want to be able to shepherd people. But I do talk to the deacons about this, and generally this congregation does profoundly well for the size of the congregation. I don't really understand what is given apart from people are doing this sacrificially. So even though this has not been something that has been stressed from the pulpit by any means, this issue of financial giving, you excel in it. So what I'm giving you here then this afternoon, I hope, is more shaping your understanding with respect to these things than it is any kind of even encouragement to do this because you are already doing it. And let me also say that beyond all of this, in reality, supporting our families, while not a substitute for supporting the Lord's work in the local church, is itself actually supporting the Lord's work. Are you making little disciples in your home? I hope that you are. I hope that you're some way, somehow catechizing them. I hope that you're giving them the gospel. I hope that you're growing them in their understanding of the gospel. And if you're doing that, that's the Lord's work, obviously. And without money, even that sort of work is a little bit more difficult because being homeless makes it more difficult. So in that way, you are financially supporting the work of the kingdom as well. And also, this concept of first fruits and working first for the Lord transcends money and grain or meat and wine. You saw that in the passages that I read to you, but the principle also extends to everything that we do. So, stay-at-home mom, why do you work hard in the home? Do you work hard in the home for your husband, for your children? I hope so. But those are reasons. They're not the reason. And if they become the reason, you're going to be an idolater who will do harm to your husband and your children. Cannot love them more than you love the Lord. That's a great truth here I'm going to give to you right now. Those who don't love Christ most don't love others well. Last week, we spoke about the boomer mother and father who crippled their children through godless coddling. They do this because their children are their first and greatest priority and really the feeling that they derive from being a mother or father. That's why the kids are all messed up later in life. That's why they can't function. That's why they're non-functioning adults who continue to rely upon the parents as the foundation of their lives instead of moving on because mom and dad didn't love Jesus more. They loved the children most and again, really the sense that they derive from being needed by the children. So the two greatest archetypes to keep you away from this for you to use as an example if you're a mother and you want to work first for the Lord are, I think, that's my opinion, you can find another one in Scripture, but I think Hannah is certainly one who wept for that little baby boy so profusely that she was supposed to have been drunk And then when her barren womb was blessed, what did she do with that baby? When he was a toddler, gave him right back to the temple, to the service of the Lord. What a profound sacrifice. And the greatest archetype of these things, I think, has got to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. She had that little hiccup at the wedding of Cana where she wanted to be vindicated. But no mother has sacrificed in that way. She raised that little boy from birth to give him to the death on the cross that he was going to suffer and she stayed at the foot of the cross. And these women were able to do this because they recognized rightly that these babies, these boys that would become men and did become men did not first and foremost belong to them. They first and foremost belonged to God 
Therefore, the work that they did on their behalf was first to the Lord. And if you're a man and you need an archetype for this, as a father who works first for the Lord, it's got to be Abraham, humanly speaking, who has the son of the promise, who raises him and then is willing to sacrifice him per the command of God. He has such great faith in God. If Abraham's faith or life is built upon his son, then he cannot do that. He is not free. But because his great faith was placed placed in God, he was free to do that. And of course, God the Father is the greatest example of godly priorities with God the Eternal Son. To take him from his bosom, to incarnate him, and then to crush him with his wrath on behalf of sinners is the greatest godly priority of them all. But in summation of this point, whether it be your money, your talents, your time, or whatever, pay homage first to the one who gave you these gifts with your first fruits, and then follow other pursuits that are in keeping with godliness after that. Don't make any of those things your priority. So with that, we have point number two, and point number two is that the proverbial person minds their money. The proverbial person minds their money. And this is certainly connected to the first point, but it is not identical. If working first for the Lord demonstrated by giving him your first fruits is the what, then here we have the how. And to start, you cannot give what you have misallocated or flat out wasted. And thus Solomon helps us to prioritize our expenses, and I'm going to establish with you now three such priorities from Proverbs. The first is don't become the slave of somebody else's ideal lifestyle. Don't become the slave of somebody else's ideal lifestyle. Proverbs 12.9, better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Now let me ask you, in that passage, who's doing the light esteeming? Oh, we don't have anybody named, actually, so we're left to draw conclusions, and I think that's his point, because the source of this can be many different uh, individuals or groups. Might be the in-laws, and maybe you're married to their little girl, and they think that she should have all of these things because they have a standard not grounded in the Word of God. Maybe it's your siblings who have this concept of a, of a lifestyle that you should have, and there's a sibling rivalry there. Maybe you have friends, and this one gets an 82-inch TV, so you feel compelled to get a 90-inch, and then a 100, pretty soon you don't have a wall left in your living room. God forbid it would be fellow church members who have this unbiblical standard that you feel like you need to live up to, but maybe. And it is almost certainly the materialistic society writ large that this person lives in because every society has been materialistic ever because we are by nature idolaters and what we idolize most is ourselves. And so, of course, we want to give ourselves every good gift that we can. But all these sources look down their noses at this person who is prudent with their wisdom, prudent rather with their money and wise with it. But the thing is here that while the wise person of Proverbs 12.9 may drive a used car, at least they don't have to pull out three credit cards at the pump because the first two were overdrawn and now they're hoping and praying that the third one's going to go through. I may not be keeping up with the Joneses, but according to the text, they are keeping up with the grocery bill. So that's something. 
And the lesson here is that God's people work for His glory. We do not work for status. And it seems to me that there are two kinds of people who fall prey to this focus on status. And the first kind is the one that really wants to be admired. My previous line of work, I sold remodeling materials. I owned a construction company. And I had this particular development in Braxville full of people that I call the almost and the not quites or the not yets, which are the not really rich people because those people are secure enough to not need to be validated in the eyes of everybody. Um, but they're trying to work their way up, to the, up the ladder and they live in the maybe four to $700,000 house range, but they are robbing Peter to pay Paul. They are absolute slaves. They're the ones pulling out the various different credit cards at the pump. They are that overextended because they're all trying to keep up with their neighbor or with some idyllic concept of what it means to be successful. So that's the first kind. And by my observation, uh, more of this seems to be driven by women than by men, which is not to say that you don't have men who are covetous in this way, but women are more relational than men and therefore I think more apt to define themselves by a standard established by those that they are related to and want to advance within a certain social paradigm and this is an aspect of that. So more often in marriages it's the wife that more naturally succumbs to this kind of thing and then drives her husband to help her maintain status within that group. And so brothers, this means that you need to lead your wife away from this if indeed you are in this kind of a circumstance. You need to be the one establishing godly priorities and saying, no, we need what the Lord says we need. We don't need what so-and-so says we need. And I am not inclined to keep up with them, but rather to meet the needs of my family and to meet them well. Again, though, I've seen many men do this, and God forbid it would, you, it would be you, brother, leading this. You're the one who is to instill godly principles and godly priorities. Then there's the second kind of person who seeks to live up to the standards of their society. And this is the person who is just doing this because they have not really deeply thought through this issue. It's just what everybody else is doing, and so they sort of pick it up sort of on an autopilot being steered by their society's priorities. I was this once. Lydia and I both were in this situation at one point. We're not particularly materialistic people. We've never really cared. But we did buy into what the world says that we needed, and this is the reason why we stopped having children, which was sin for us. And I've said that from the pulpit in the past. Okay, but this is why. Because at a certain point, we just felt like we should be responsible. Where is faith in God? Uh, Nowhere. It was nowhere present in that decision. We just imbibed unknowingly from the society in which we lived this notion that you've got to make X amount of dollars or you should stop having children. But whatever the reason for your pursuit of the ideal lifestyle, understand that a truly ideal lifestyle is one in which you and your family have everything that they actually need and are able to prioritize their finances according to godly priorities because you are free from the yoke of debt. And this brings us into the next priority for how we are to spend our money, and that is avoid debt as much as possible. 
Avoid debt as much as possible. Proverbs 22.7 The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's friend, buddy. Oh, do you know the verse? What is the word? Slave. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. There is not any aspect of godliness that debt does not hinder. You simply do not have as much to devote to godliness if you are a slave to debt. And you're also going to struggle much more so than you need to to abide in peace and have peaceful relationships. For example, are you familiar with the number one most cited cause of divorce? It's financial problems. Has been forever. A lot of this, though, is taken care of if the first priority is simply honored, which is don't become the slave of somebody else's ideal lifestyle. If you're only focused on what you actually need and not trying to keep up with the Joneses, then you don't typically go into debt. So avoid debt if you can, whenever and wherever you can. But what do you do if you've already become some debtor slave? Well, according to Solomon, if you're in this situation, you emancipate yourself with extreme prejudice. Again, this is a passage that I've already read to you in another context, but Proverbs 6, 1 through 11. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man." Understand that they are predator and you are prey, says Solomon. Go importune them. Have a conversation. Try to reconcile your debt. See if they'll meet you in the middle and then work your rear end off with this understanding that you indeed are their slave. And going back to the last lesson, don't become or remain a slave of your aging parents either. Don't let them pay your bills. Very often, these parents exploit their financial contributions to guilt the child who is an adult now into compliance. He or she who writes the checks makes the decisions. One way or another, they get to determine how and where you spend your time and what your priorities ought to be. So you need to be the one writing your own checks so that you can make your own decisions. Take the debtor's power away from them. The creditor, rather. Take the creditor's power away from them. Because the only creditor that any of us should actually have, ideally, would be God. Right? Live free. Live by the grace of God. Do not live under the yoke of debt. The final priority, which is only possible if you're not in debt up to your eyeballs, is that the proverbial man or woman is a generous protector of the poor. Proverbial man or woman is a generous protector of the poor. This is constant through the book of Proverbs. It's constant through the entirety of Scripture. Let me just give you one example now, though. 
Proverbs 22.9, he who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. And I do not believe that the nature of these blessings are entirely uh, natural or physical. These are spiritual blessings as well. And there were certainly spiritual blessings heaped upon the benefactors in the book of Acts as we've been going through that series. Who gave joyfully from their abundance, who sold their additional fields and contributed to the work of God. Here's the same thing stated elsewhere, Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the poor, and he will repay him for his good deed. Now, the only real difference between that and the previous passage is that in 1917, it's very clear that the blessings are not coming from the universe or from karma or good vibes being sent back to you. They're coming from God. And as mentioned previously, there are also the actions of the Proverbs 31 woman that shed great light on this. In keeping with her maternal nature, she, in verse 15 of that chapter, rises while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She's thinking about them. And verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. Why are we to give to the poor? Because we will be generally blessed if we do? Well, that's a reason. Verse 10, the previous passage that we looked at, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine in chapter 3. There's also the fact that it's compassionate, but that's still, again, a reason. It's getting closer here, but it's not the reason. So what is the reason to be gracious to the poor? Because God is. That's the reason. Because God is gracious to the poor and we have been born again according to His nature and His nature and His response to the poor based upon His nature is gloriously clear from Solomon. And we'll start with Proverbs twenty-three, ten through 11. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. If you don't understand exactly what's happening there, there's a boundary line between fields from one person's property to another, and the one individual is in a state to where they can be taken advantage of easily. They don't have a a natural defender. They are fatherless, and so the other individual exploits that situation and takes the boundary marker and moves it wherever they want it to be to expand their own fields. It's property theft. And God says, don't do that because though they may not have a father a natural protector that you can see, I see you. I am their redeemer and I am strong and I will plead their case against you. Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-two through 23 also says, don't rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. The poor have an advocate and it is the father of all creation. This is his nature. And thank God it is, yeah? Because it seems like I was poor in spirit and the Lord reached out to me and that's fundamental to why he saved me. By the way, perhaps the aforementioned health and wealth heretics would do well to read that verse because all they do is crush the afflicted at the gate and rob the poor. Our Lord Jesus also had a priority upon the poor, didn't he? When John the Baptist asked, how do I know that it's you? 
How do I know that you're the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Jesus responded by quoting a passage of Scripture, I believe from Jeremiah, in which he stated, the gospel has been preached to the poor, meaning poor in spirit and poor materially as well. And he was often feeding people and often providing for them. Conversion uh, should produce this kind of compassion inevitably because to be converted is to be born again in the image of God. And this is too fundamental to the nature of God to not be born out in us. In fact, this is so fundamental to being a Christian that somebody who characteristically lacks compassion for the poor, I just cannot believe they are a Christian. We are often not as attentive as we ought to be. But to have a total lack of concern when you were poor and the Lord reached out to you, I find incompatible with our faith. And much of this is done through the local church for the Christian, this giving to the poor, because then the, the, the church becomes the instrument uh, of that, but it does not need to be institutional. I'm very aware, and I'm sure not aware of all of it, but many of you take care of each other in your own way, and you don't need to go through the church in order to do that. Amen. And you take care of others beyond this. That is an expression of your faith. But I will say this. If you're going to give to the poor, make sure, first of all, that your money is not being used for uh, evil purposes. I used to donate to all kinds of causes, especially at Christmas, because I wanted to. And then I found out that a large portion of my money was going to abortion later, because if you're giving to secular organizations, that'll happen. But if you're giving to individuals, as I've done this too on the streets, always give the gospel. Always give the gospel. Always make sure that they understand that this isn't you being a good person in general that this is you reflecting the glory of God to them because you've been made a new creature. Now, in conclusion, though, I have some homework for you, Christian, a little bit. And that is tomorrow morning when you wake to work either in the home or outside of it, I want you to pray to the Lord and commit your first fruits to Him in all ways. I want you to focus your mind and your heart upon that and bear in mind continually that that is what you are ultimately working for and what a privilege it is. And I will say to you finally, for anyone here that does not know the Lord, before you can give first fruits in a way that truly honors the Lord, you have to be first fruits. Do you know the Lord Jesus? And stuff about money is really not about money. But for two and a half years, I didn't actually preach a sermon on money because I found it so icky and didn't want to address it. And then I realized that it's not about money. It's an act of worship. Have you become, though, a worshiper? Because otherwise your financial contributions don't mean anything. The Lord takes the wealth of the wicked and uses it for the righteous. That's about it. We don't want to see that. Do you know Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted his perfect life on your account as your creditor? credited with his righteousness, his sufficient death, and that he rose again on the third day, conquering death, have you risen with him? That is the critical issue. And we pray that you will today if you have not already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to break the bread of your word again. I pray that these principles...
on money would be well received by your people, Lord. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.